The R.L. Polk Company started business in 1870, publishing business directories. In 1921, it started compiling data and statistics on automotive sales, and the rest is history. It's probably the world's leader in sales data for the automotive industry. That's why I've invited Stephen Polk, the CEO of the company, on today's show. The company's involved in so much information about the industry that he's the perfect guy to ask what's going on. Everything from sales to electric cars to brand proliferation and car company consolidation. And to help me figure out what to ask him, I've got Tom Walsh with the Detroit Free Press and Jeff Green, the Detroit Bureau Chief for Bloomberg, joining me on my journalist panel. So stay right where you are. We'll be back right after this. From our studios in the Motor City, this is AutoLine. Here now is John McElroy. Welcome to AutoLine Detroit, and joining us for today's show is Stephen Polk, the CEO of Polk Company. Is that right? It used to be R.L. Polk. How, how do you call it now? Well, officially, it's R.L. Polk and Company, but we use Polk as our brand to market. And a company that goes back, what, well over 100 years. 140 years celebrating our anniversary this year. We'll have to talk about some of that, but also joining us today is Tom Walsh from the Detroit Free Press. Great having you back on the show, as always, Tom. Good to be here. And Jeff Green from Bloomberg. Great having you back as well, Jeff. Good having me. Steve, as you look out on the market these days, where do you see it going? I mean, uh, everyone thought a year ago that 2010 would be the year that we come back, and even more than that, I think uh, Polk even put out a, uh, a sales estimate by 2013, we'd be back to 14, 15 million units, something like that. Are we on track or what? You know, we're still seeing the outlook in a positive way. I think we're seeing, we actually bumped our forecast up a little bit for this year, um, but it's going to be a lot of ups and downs as we go through it. Uh, clearly, 2013-14, I think it's still very probable we'll be well over 13 million units. Uh, but keeping our fingers crossed because uh, it's, it's tentative at the moment. Yeah, absolutely is. And, you know, we've seen more strength this year, obviously, on the fleet side of the business. Mm -hmm. Retail hasn't really come back all that much, has it? No, people keep looking at the numbers overall and saying the market's back. But if you actually look year over year to date, uh, retail numbers fairly flat with what we had a year ago. Why is that, do you think? Just the overall economy or uh, is there I, something wrong with the car business why they haven't come back? I think people are still afraid to spend the money. I think financing hasn't come back as strong as it could have. There's still a lot of room to... Uh, bring some more lenders into the market, make it happen. Did cash for clunkers pull some forward from this year or? Uh, undoubtedly, yeah. I mean, we paid a penalty for cash for clunkers. I mean, it was, it was great. And when we get to the end of August this year, it's gonna be maybe a little scary when we look back because it was so good from a year ago. It's, it certainly infected the sales. So when we make that year to year comparison, August to August, right. it's probably not going to look that good for 2010. It, it's going to be very hard to even imagine in August of 2010 that it'll look anything like last year. What about the idea that we're just waiting for the lenders to come back? Is there a chance that the lenders don't come back? I mean, this was a, a downturn based on lending gone awry. Will, will the conservatism shrink, maybe come into lending and make it harder for the car companies to return to the market they used to have? Will the used market sort of have to take the place of the low end of the new market? But clearly, used cars are very much competing with some of the new car purchasers for the, for the dollars today. Um, I think it's very, it will be interesting to see. Um, the financial marketplace has seen some signs of strength, but you talk to dealers and they're saying uh, it's still very tough to qualify. A lot of people are coming through the front door. You know, they talk about minimum FICO scores at 700. Well, that's way higher than they're used to from historical marketplace. And if that doesn't come down, 
it's going to continue to be a fairly soft retail market probably. Steve, as you look out uh, into the marketplace, everyone seems to be coming out with electric cars in the next few years. We've got some of the upstarts like uh, Fisker and Tesla. We've got well-established manufacturers such as Nissan and General Motors coming to market. What's your sense? Are these things going to catch on or, or what is your viewpoint on it? I think it'll be a niche for quite a long time. I mean, clearly there's a lot of sex appeal in what the LEAF looks like. Um, I, certainly everybody in Detroit is excited about what happens with the Volt, and we all have very high hopes, but heavily dependent on a government subsidy, at least for the first couple of years. Uh, a little bit like the hybrids, there'll be people that are going to have to have them because they have to have them, but as a mass market appeal, I think it's going to be quite a while. Sure, because, I mean, here we are a dozen years later. Uh, there's seven different brands selling some 20 different hybrids. Mm-hmm. It's still only a little over 2% of the market. Do you think EVs can do better than that or, or not as good? I think it's probably not going to be a whole lot higher demand from what my estimation is when you look at EVs. Um, it's a limited set. People, this whole range anxiety thing, I think will be real. Uh, for the daily commuter that knows exactly where they're going to be every day of the week, it, there's a certain subset it'll work for. We haven't figured out how the power grid's going to feed it yet. Um, I think the, even the plug dynamics, now they're talking about reading how hard it's going to be to get a charger put in your house. It's not a slam dunk. And expensive. I mean, a charger is going to be several thousand dollars right. to put in and your house. No too. one's started to calculate that in the cost of ownership yet. Right. Yeah. What do you see uh, going on in terms of us holding on to cars? Some of the poke data shows that the average car in the market today is the oldest I think it's ever been. It's, it's over 10 years well, you look, on average. In 2001, average new car buyer held onto their car for 48 months. That's essentially five years. So now, 10 years later, the average new car buyer today is, has held their car for six years. So it's actually gone up a full 25% when you look at the time over time, or 20%. Um, that's a big jump. It's, I mean, when is you, that due to the fact that the cars are just that much better, or are we consumers poorer? What's going on there, do you think? There was a steady increase over that decade. It didn't all happen in the last couple of years. Um, basically, every year from 2009, you saw people holding by a month or two longer than they had historically. So I think it absolutely saying something about the product. I mean, the products are great. The average car on the road now is over 10 years old. Um, that's the first time in history that's happened. Uh, you're just seeing better performance, and I think... Certainly, economics are driving it. Um, people are looking and say, I don't need a new car right now. This one's good for another year. And they're, they're able to realize that. What about the other end of the buyer? I mean, there's been some studies that have been out, and I'm not sure how big of a, of a, of a pool it's looking at, but that new buyers aren't really interested. The, the younger kids, the car isn't all that important to them. It's, it's just something they get around in. There's not the passion maybe there were when we were kids to get your first new car, and, and, and that may also affect where car buyers come from. If we, I'm going to keep mine longer, and my kid may not even want one until they're 18 or, or move out of the house. Do you think that's, a, are you seeing that? Well, absolutely. Seeing the passion around the youth market is different than it was growing up. I mean, that's somewhat anecdotal, but you just look around, and I can see it in my own kids. Um, I also think you're seeing an awful lot more people that are going into, whether it's the near new, the CPO program cars, um, certified vehicles out of the manufacturers, or just the straight used car market, again, because the reliability and the safety factors are there. Um, I think people are confident that they can go to the used car market and pick up those things, which especially for that youth car market is, is ideal in a lot of ways. Will Americans buy small cars? We're about to see a bunch of B-class cars, subcompact cars, come on the market, like the Ford Fiesta, the Mazda 2, 
uh, the Chevy Cruze and the like. And we keep hearing out of Washington that absolutely Americans want to buy small, fuel-efficient cars. But you're the guy who keeps track of all the numbers and who's buying what. What do you think is going to happen? Until gas gets back to $4 a gallon, I don't see it being a huge migration. I mean, if you look at the vehicle segments that are doing well today, we're back into SUVs and pickups. Um, Americans like big cars. We like the room. Um, what we saw for small cars is very much it's gasoline price driven and you know I don't know other than BP uh, messing up the Gulf of Mexico I mean there's not a lot to suggest the price of gas is going up high anytime real soon. There almost seems to be an underlying theme to a lot of what we're talking about. Cars are more reliable, we're keeping them longer which means the fuel economy improvements take longer to get into the fleet. Electric cars don't penetrate very deeply. Right. Small cars aren't that popular. There's an energy strategy that we're developing in this country that we're paying billions upon billions of dollars to get. I mean, is that at risk? Do we, are we spending a lot of money to, to sort of just make changes at the margins? How, how do you get at the core? We, we want to use less fuel. Yeah, I don't know. When I look at CAFE, it just seems like we've, we've created a recipe for disaster um, because it's not matching what people want to buy with the products that we're mandating manufacturers make. Um, I think the point's well taken. I, we're, we're not, public policy is mismatching where the consumers want to be, and without an energy policy, I mean, without an energy policy, it, it, it's a broken recipe right now. Well, as, as an oil man told me, he said, our energy policy is this, John, we don't want you to use oil, but we're going to make it as plentiful and as cheap as possible. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and that seems to be the, the, the energy policy that this, this country has. I think another danger, too, is that some of the mid-sized cars are now starting to get pretty decent fuel economy. Exactly. Right. So as in a Hyundai Sonata, as I like to say, going down the freeway, four people in it, air conditioning on, getting 40 miles to the gallon. Yep. And people are going to say, you know, I don't need a little car. This is plenty good for me. Right. And, and so, but CAFE mandates that automakers have to build not a few and not to market demand, but millions of these small cars, whether they want to or not. That, that's the danger I see for the industry in it. Yeah, it's very quirky. When it's well, and it, yeah, and it all depends on what, you know, then what sells, what, you know, what, what's the volume. And if you can buy a Fusion that's going to get 41 in a hybrid, um, what do you need a little, you know, tiny thing for? You know, it, it's going to get you around fine, and uh, and it's also going to last a long time, as you know, as Jeff was pointing out. And I, and I think that's all, that's all playing in here. Uh, Steve, another thing that's playing in, and, and something that I know you guys track assiduously, is the scrappage rate. How many cars are we scrapping every year? And uh, as as R.L. Polk has pointed out, we're now scrapping more cars than we're building. This has got to be good news for the industry at some point, right? I mean, the, the used cars, the prices have gone through the roof all year long. But i got to believe at some point, if you're scrapping so many cars and, and the used car market is red hot, at some point, consumers have got to turn to new cars. Or is that not logical? Well, it really depends on the economy in general, I think, when you look at it. Obviously, scrappage has gone up. 2009 was the first year since we started measuring it in 1948 that we saw a higher scrappage rate than we saw added to the market. Um, net decline in the total vehicles in operation. Likely to happen again in 2010, although the margin could be fairly narrow. Um, the real key to getting the fleet building out again, I think, is whether people are going to have as many cars in their household. There's some question that there won't be as many multiple car-owning households as there, uh, there were historically. 
Um, so I think it's going to be up in the air. Um, pen up, there's clearly pent-up demand. Um, the used car market pricing is definitely reflecting some more hunger by the car buying public, um, but it, it's going to be a, a delicate equilibrium. What do you think about the consolidation uh, notion in the industry? We've been hearing for decades it's going to consolidate down to three or four big global companies. But yes, but but last week when GM was doing their presentation for analysts to whet their appetite for an IPO, Steve Gursky said really exactly the opposite has happened, that we've seen a proliferation of brands and declining market shares for everybody uh, along the European model where nobody has 20% of the market. And, and then when we have Teslas and Fiskers coming in too, uh, you know, are, are we going to consolidate or are we going to proliferate or, or what? Again, a personal opinion on it, I think it's likely to be a consolidation, but not of the order of magnitude that I think we've seen historically. And in the U.S. market, um, we're still talking about Fiat coming in with a, a, a new brand in Alfa Romeo coming through a, the sales channel. So we're probably going to see more brands represented, even though it, it, the final ownership is consolidated at that case. Sure, and then the Chinese haven't even hit this market yet. That's true. Undoubtedly, they will. Uh, the Indians, or at least Mahindra, was supposed to be in the market right. already. It's running into some problems, but I would imagine it's going and to get them straightened out and be in the market here as well. And the Indians are here with uh, JLR, certainly. Mm -hmm. You know, Jaguar Land Rover is definitely right. going to be here, so they're, Ta -ta. they're learning. What do you make of all, you know, going almost the opposite of what Tom's talking about, but from a brand standpoint, getting rid of these brands? Do you, you got a, uh, any insight as to how this might affect GM having gotten rid of four brands? Ford's gotten rid of Jaguar and Land Rover and Aston Martin, soon Volvo and Mercury right on in line too. What, what do you make of them getting rid of all these brands? Well, I think it's good business practice because the, clearly General Motors historically had diluted the brand value with the overlap that they created. So uh, the end result is General Motors today is selling nearly as many cars as they did when they had the extra four brands last year, which is very good news for what GM is. Isn't that very telling, happen? too? Yep. Boy, amazing. Get rid of four brands and still sell almost as many cars. Although I'm still wondering when I drive down here to the, see your uh, showroom and saw the, the Hummers still out there and some of the old dealerships as they're trying to unwind, they still can't sell them and they've been out of business for better part of a year, right? Um, it, it, it is telling and I think the brand consolidation is a good thing, certainly for the Detroit companies. Um, but then we see Chrysler turn around going the other way again, too. So They've added a brand. What do, what do you make of that, adding the Ram brand, splitting it from Dodge? Um, Got to see how it plays out. I mean, it, it certainly is interesting that the trucks have a, a marketplace. To me, they've always been Dodge. But, um, I mean, it's Ram. Um, we'll have to see where they take it. I want to see where they run with the uh, whole promotion side. So far, their sales are down just for Ram, which is just the trucks, you know, uh, the Ram truck and uh, the Dakota. So... I don't know if you can read too much into that. Is it a result of them splitting the, the, the Ram brand off or just the fact that Chrysler's been kind of weak? I think Chrysler's a, just beginning to rebuild some momentum in the marketplace. I mean, they really fell much further and faster probably than anybody else over what was a, an awful year. Um, the, the comeback, they're starting to feel their legs underneath them, but the, the, it's new. It's going to take a while. Do you think this was done for taking that brand into the international market more than it was for the American market. And what I mean by this is uh, Fiat's strong in Europe. It can bring Chrysler products to Europe. Mm -hmm. Dodge is not well known at all. And to bring what the Europeans would perceive as a commercial vehicle, 
not for, you know, like we use pickups in this country for everyday commuting, right. but as a commercial a vehicle. Car. So to have a commercial vehicle and a passenger car for an, essentially a new brand to Europe, Dodge in this case, I, I'm wondering in Latin America and other markets as well, I wonder if Sergio Marchione's idea behind splitting RAM had more to do with taking that in the international market rather than trying to do more sales in the U.S. market. Now, that's a good point. The biggest push I've seen in Europe, I think, has been more some of the traditional Chrysler and the Jeep brands. Um, I, I don't know how that will play out. I don't, don't have a lot of knowledge of it. Interesting thing. They, they were just uh, in San Francisco with the Jeep a couple weeks ago. And what they said, Lancia is going to take over all the Chrysler brands in Europe. So you, you'll buy Lancias in Europe. But when they talked about how they were going to go internationally, Jeep is their only international brand from the Chrysler side. They talked about specifically, when they talked about Europe, they talked about Dodge. When they talked about Brazil, they talked about the Ram. So, I mean, it seems like there's places where the truck plays well. Then you bring in it, you're just bringing in the Ram, and, you, and it's people who want trucks. The Dodge is, is meant to be the whole muscle car bravado thing for the mm -hmm. niche European buyer. And it does seem like they're looking at it as how do these play outside of the U.S.? Because inside the U.S., I want a Ram pickup. I really don't care if it's a Dodge or not. And I, it does seem like they are looking internationally, and, and it may work. It, it may work. It clearly, it, nothing else has worked for Chrysler over the last 10 or 15 years. We've been hearing about 1% in Europe since I've been an auto reporter. <laughs> <laughs> and the pickup market in Europe just continues to be pretty much non-existent. Very small. Yep. And, uh, and what pickups there are are smaller than our full-size right. ones. They're not what we would call a standard pickup. You know, we touched on this earlier of uh, Ford getting rid of the Mercury brand, now going to really emphasize the Lincoln brand. Do you think that it can really catch up to the other luxury brands in the market? Well, Lincoln's got such a great history. Um, I was a little surprised when they killed the town car. Um, you seem like that was a, certainly a, a flagship vehicle for a long time. Not having an eight-cylinder car in the, the lineup um, it was an unusual move, but certainly the product that they've been coming out with recently is, is sharp. Um, they've got an interesting challenge ahead rebuilding it, um, but I don't think Mercury helped them historically. Right. In rebuilding that, is it a, a product side thing that they've really got to work on, marketing, or, or both? In my perspective, would be both. I mean, I think they've got some excellent product, excellent product in the marketplace that seems to be well-received. Um, I don't know if they're getting the visibility across the buying audience that they'd like to see. So that's clearly going to be part of the marketing challenge they have. Is there a sense with, we talked about the automakers themselves and all the changes, the distribution system, which is, you know, as we were talking about earlier, really important, underwent a really dramatic change. A lot of people got shut down in a really short period of time. Are you seeing a sense of distribution because there's fewer cars going through or more cars potentially going through fewer dealerships? Are we starting to see an effect of that? Is the quality of distribution, the, sort of that mass scale showing up in any way, or, or do you think it will? Is that, is that going to be a factor as we go forward? That's a good question. I think the whole outcome, I mean, it was General Motors and Chrysler were really the only two that had a significant impact by it. Um, GM's now reinstated a fairly significant group of that. There were the distressed guys, too. There's a lot of people who did it involuntarily. Well, of course, yeah. I mean, the total population of dealers clearly went down by uh, yeah, another 10%. Um, again, personal opinion, they were over-dealered in a lot of those areas. So I'm not sure the ultimate impact is, is terribly dramatic in the marketplace. I mean, the quality of the dealerships, one would hope it's going to allow for more expense on the existing dealership side. They can build the facilities to attract consumers. 
Um, we track a lot of loyalty statistics around what happens with manufacturers, and that dealer experience is absolutely critical for manufacturers' loyalty. Um, I think the jury's going to be out to see how much impact it's really going to have, though, across those brands. They all have a lot of work, and there's still an awful lot of dealers out there that are barely scraping by on the volumes that we're seeing today. I think part of the impact, at least short term, is positive, at least for General Motors in its big meeting for uh, the analysts last week. It, you know, one of the points that it really made is that they're earning $3,000 more in revenue per vehicle right now. Now, a lot of that, most of it, I'm sure, has got to do with fewer incentives. But I imagine there's some impact of having fewer dealers. So Chevy dealers, if, if you don't have four or five other Chevy dealers you know, within a short drive of you and you're the last remaining Chevy dealer, you don't have to compete on price as much against your fe fellow Chevrolet dealers. So I, I got to imagine that's had an impact, at least in the short term here, that's been good in this case for GM. Yeah, I'd like to hear Steve talk about transaction prices because I look at those numbers and, and I say something doesn't add up here right to me because out of that $3,000, I think their incentives are down by 1200 or something. So a third of it is incentives, but are they really getting that much more for vehicle or is some of it mixed? Obviously, pickup trucks are selling a little better now than they were a year ago. So is that a mixed thing or do we, re or, or do we really think uh, that people are are loading up their cars more, maybe buying fewer cars, but loading them up more and willing to pay the price for sync or, or whatever the, the nav system is? Well, the, the number I think most when I understand the greater profitability they're getting is the, what impact that's pulled through from the labor negotiations and from the health care right. costs. I mean, that's, that's a huge number that's been through on each side. Um, incentives uh, are somewhat concerning that they may be creeping back in. Um, the, the sustainability, right. the, it was great when the, we all declared incentives were dead in the marketplace, but uh, I mean, that's part of what the retail world is seeing come back in, and we're seeing it from unusual places. I mean, incentives are coming back in from the Toyotas of the world and the Hondas of the world that uh, historically didn't really play that game. I think another thing, too, is we're finally starting to see what many of us car people have been saying is that when you put cheap plastic interiors in a car and you save the money in putting in cheap plastic interiors, you don't save anything because you've got to put all these incentives on the car. And even though the incentives, to your point, Tom, haven't come down all that much, if you look at two of the examples that GM likes to cite is uh, the old Chevy Equinox versus the new one. Step inside that car. It is a night and day difference. The new one is so good, so good. And they're getting $5,000 more per vehicle. Same with uh, the Buick LaCrosse. You get inside that car, it's really That's nice. A it's car. a real Buick. It's a real Buick. I think they're getting $7,500 more per car. And I would argue a huge amount of that is saying, okay, we're not going to skimp on the interior. We're going to do it right. Well, that costs another three or $400, which you know automakers can leverage uh, a huge amount in buying that much stuff. So you put $300 in the interior and you end up on average getting $3,000 more per car. So I think it's a combination of all these things. Fewer dealers, lower incentives, certainly, no, beyond a shadow of a question, much nicer cars as well. Steve's point about uh, in terms of profitability and lowering that, you know, that, that fixed cost, you know, at the big three with those labor contracts and everything. What's your sense of where market share is going? I mean, we've been through, what, I don't know, is it three decades of just relentless, you know, reduction of the Detroit share of market to, uh, to mostly Asian 
uh, population. Is are is that over? I mean, we're you know we're seeing now. Okay, we're even on JD Pollard quality. Uh, but on the other hand, as I as I said in a column, as I'm listening to this GM presentation and how great all their cars are, I'm flipping through my consumer reports, and for all of the good press the Malibu's gotten, it still is middle of the pack in consumer reports as among sedans, and and the Impala is 19th out of 20th. So perceptions out there still haven't come full board. Do you, do you think there's uh, the market share thing is leveled out or are we going to still see some more erosion? And we need a quick Detroit? answer. Well, I don't think we're going to get a lot of erosion to it. I think we're likely to end up in that European scenario, though, where there's a big pack of people that are all between said 12 and 17 percent market share, 10 and 17 percent market share, not much above that. Going to be very competitive. But with that, we're going to have to wrap it up. Steve Polk, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's terrific great. having you here. Tom Walsh, Jeff Green, great having you guys here. And I'll be back in a moment with some closing thoughts. I hope you enjoyed today's show and all the different topics that we covered. By the way, if you'd like even more information about the global automotive industry, check out AutoLine Daily. It's an eight-minute-ish daily webcast that covers all aspects of the industry, and we'll happily email it to you every day to make it easy to keep up with. Check out our website at AutoLineDetroit.tv to get all the information about it. And for all of us here at AutoLine Detroit, thanks for watching. We'll see you next week.